Welcome back to the Red Dice Diaries RPG podcast with John and Hannah. Hi. And today we're going to be talking about the Bloodworm from the first edition AD&D Fiend Folio. Now, unlike previous episodes in this monster series, we actually put a poll up on Twitter a few days ago where we offered a few monsters out of the Fiend Folio and the Bloodworm or the giant bloodworm, to give it its proper name, was the winner. If you voted in that poll, or if you've got any thoughts on that, let us know. We're going to try it again for the future and see how we get on. But let's get to the intro, and then we're going to talk about the bloodworm. Okay, so the giant bloodworm is a creature that appeared in the AD&D 1st Edition Fiend Folio. It's got a nice black and white bit of artwork showing this sort of maggot-like creature with these four sort of pincers or teeth around the edge of it lunging out of a pool. It's described as a creature that inhabits shallow pools in underground caverns. It's described as having a dull brown colour and this is used as camouflage. It's vulnerable to fire, taking twice the amount of damage you would normally get from fire and this is one of the best ways to get them to release a victim because like a leech this version of the bloodworm whilst it only attacks when it's hungry which the fiend folio describes as being about once a week or if directly trodden on once it's made its first attack it latches onto you with those four teeth and on the subsequent rounds it automatically does you 1d8 hit points of damage as it sucks blood out of you and you either have to damage them concoct some other way of getting them to let go or use some fire to sort of burn them off so love you're looking at the ADD second ed monster manual where it's sort of grouped together with a number of other worms like the purple worm the bookworm and the rock grub mm-hmm. so what does it say about the giant blood worm in that well it's almost identical virtually word for word uh it's a slightly shorter explanation i think than in the first edition book but same sort of thing only attacks when stepped on Yeah, just to say, as you were saying, it gets like three paragraphs right up in the Fiend folio since the monsters there don't get a whole page. Whereas in the AD&D Second Ed Monster Manual, there's a whole page, but it's split between four different types of worm with most of them getting like a paragraph and the purple worm, which is obviously fairly iconic, gets like a few more paragraphs. Mm -hmm. So same colour, same description only attacks when hungry or stepped on same 1d8 damage once it's hit you it does that automatically each turn until it's killed or removed uh removal requires a successful open doors roll oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's not i suppose su- that makes sense yeah, it's not surprising because open doors was used as sort of like a, a almost like a test of strength Mm. sort of back but back in sort of ADD second edition so it makes sense i suppose you're trying to prize it off you yeah and then you've got the same vulnerable to fire roll i noticed that the size description is also the same 20 feet long in both books yeah so considerably bigger than uh the actual blood worms which i was watching a youtube video about earlier yeah uh i must admit I'd never heard of these before. It had never occurred to me that there was a real creature called Bloodworms. Uh, Whose video was it I was watching? Will they bite? 
who had some excellent close-up shots of the creature and uh, it using its proboscis and being generally creepy. I can see how this real-world creature's like developed into a proper scary D&D monster, having like looked at some photos of the real ones. The artwork in neither book does it justice. <laughs> yeah, so if I understand correctly from the video that we've both just watched, they're used a lot for fishing bait in Maine, mm-hmm. in America, and they're these long, sort of pinkish coloured worms because their insides are red the skin's translucent that's why they call blood worms and when we say long they look to be about a foot long at the longest yeah I mean, and about as thick as my little finger yeah i mean obviously the the sort of add version is the giant blood worm so hence mm-hmm. the 20 feet but the actual creatures themselves are pretty interesting as hannah was saying they sort of expel this proboscis from their mouths at the front of their head, which has these four fangs on, which I suppose are apparently made of copper, according to the video. Yeah, which is also kind of cool and would make for an entertaining usage. Yeah. Once you've killed one, I'm sure there's got to be some spell component usage you could put that to. Yeah, and basically what it does when it's hunting prey, it fires this proboscis out like a sort of biological grappling hook it grapples onto the prey injects a sort of paralyzing agent into them which isn't reflected in the statistics in the D&D version and once it's done that it basically sucks out the inside of its prey and then goes about its business so fairly unpleasant sounding when you come down to it but also interesting that the the paralytic agent because a lot of the, the monster seems to be based on the sort of real world creature. I mean, the artwork in the Fiend Folio even looks quite a lot like the real creature, but it doesn't have this paralyzing agent. Maybe they thought that was a bit too much for the, the sort of like the fairly low level creature. Maybe they just didn't know that much about bloodworms in the 70s. Right, it's, in, it's entirely <laughs> possible. And I've also seen on a, a forum online called Giant in the Playground, there was a user with the, the sort of name of Vaynor who had re-envisioned the bloodworm for D&D 3.5 obviously like non-official it was like a fan thing but they'd sort of re-envisioned them as like a small sort of swarm of these like pale creatures but these were portrayed more as parasites like once they got inside you they sort of took control over you so they were riffing on the whole blood thing so they'd moved away a bit from the sort of creature as it was originally envisioned in D&D and moving away from the actual real creature um, it's worth noting as well that Fiend Folio being one of the sort of major British contributions from TSR UK back in the day, that Citadel Miniatures, sort of in the late 80s before they became solely a sort of thing for Games Workshop, actually did some giant bloodworm minis. I saw pictures of those online. But it's a creature that doesn't seem to have made the leap to third edition. And I had a look through a lot of my third edition monster manuals various third party bits and pieces and also our fourth edition and fifth edition book collections which whilst our fifth edition collection isn't as extensive i couldn't find any mention of bloodworms in those books now to, to chat a bit a little bit about how i think you could use it in your game for me it's one of those sort of what i like to call like trap monsters where it's more like an environmental hazard or a trap than like a traditional monster because if you read the the rules in the Fiend Folio, 
mm-hmm. gets hungry about once a week. And if it's not hungry, it ain't interested in you. The only reason it would attack you if it's not hungry, and the law of averages is on your side, is if you tread on it, which immediately puts me in the mind of a trap, because like a pit trap's not dangerous unless you tread on it. Unless you trigger a trap, it's no danger whatsoever. But it does describe in the descriptions in the Fiend Folio that they have this sort of brownish coloration that sort of... Uh, camouflages them under the the sort of murky water in the pools Mm -hmm. that they dwell in so it seems to me like it's designed to be put there as a trap you sprinkle a couple this normally you encounter one to four of them it says in the description you sprinkle a couple of them on various sort of little squares in this like low-lying pool or whatever the players are walking through and if they get unlucky and try to one of those squares oh the the bloodworm attacks them and once it's latched on as we say they're taking d8 hit points around so then it becomes a race against time like oh i've got to get this thing off me especially if you're at low level where like if you get unlucky and roll an eight that's a lot of hit points to go down in one round and unless you've got it off you're conceivably taking that amount of damage again so i think it's one of those things like good traps where like even if any one player falls into it or falls foul of it once they have it then becomes the rest of the party going like oh how are we going to get this guy out of it how do we stop this before they die so that's why i think it's more of like a trap or an environmental hazard than like a traditional sort of it appears and attacks you style Mm -hmm. creature also i think the one of the handy things about the bloodworms is they can be used to emphasize the sort of filthy and downright unpleasant conditions in dungeons now obviously this is something that gets sort of glossed over or ignored a lot in games and i think part of that is just because aside from a bit of description it's not very interesting to sort of like play through now i certainly wouldn't want to like be going into a dungeon and like having the the gm go or oh, make a roll to see if you get some sort of nasty like waterborne disease or if you contract a cold or the flu or whatever <laughs> from going into this drafty dungeon because that's not what the focus of the game is however by including a monster like this you're implying a few things straight away there's low-lying water now that could be a pool or it could just be the fact water's collected like there's a foot of water you're not going to drown in it but also it's murky and it's dirty it's unhygienic and unpleasant and there's things in it so by including this monster it can then lead you to expanding your description and also nicely conveying the sort of hazardous nature of dungeon exploring without having to get into like ridiculous levels of sort of grittiness and mechanics for infections and stuff like that so i think for a simple monster you can actually get a fair bit out of it so you're talking about using it as a trap yeah and it's one of those things that a lot of gms might be very very tempted if they'd put it in a game to have that quantum ogre thing happen. oh yeah yeah you know if if the whole party is going through that pond and somehow by some miracle none of them stepped on any of your four squares that you designated for being worm squares I can see it being really tempting if you are the GM using this uh, and you that was to come up and many other situations that are similar mm-hmm. once the party's out of the water that's the moment when you have one of the worms rear its head and go back under to let them know that there was a trap there to let them know when they're coming back that there was a trap there to let them know that they've been really lucky in getting round it 
yeah, it's like that bit in Star Wars where they go into like the trash compactor. First of all, they're like, oh, it's a trash compactor. And then like something starts moving in the water and they're like, oh, there's something in here. And it doesn't directly just like attack them straight away, mm-hmm. but they see something moving around and that sort of suspense and that fear of... I mean, we often say that like, because we watch a lot of horror films, that like, the horror's almost over like as soon as you see the monster. Yeah. Because like you build up the suspense, you build up the suspense, and then when it pops out, no matter how good the effects are, mm-hmm. no matter how like horrible the practical effects or how great the CGI are, once it comes out into the light of day, it, it's a monster. It's been defined. It's a thing you can see, and then you can work out how to start dealing with it or running away from it if you can't deal with it. Whereas when it's a potential thing it's a lot more scarier, and I think it's the same with these creatures. Now, the other thing that I'd say about these is that I can see them being a really good, like, theme monster for a story. Mm. If you've got a small village that's, like, surrounded by swampy land... Yeah. ..where there's loads of them, because one of them on its own is one big worm, and 20 feet long, it's big and scary. I think it... As you mentioned with your guy doing his fan version of them for 3.5. Yeah. I think it's actually scarier if they're a bit smaller, but there's a lot more of them. Well, yeah, because, I mean, then you've got the whole, like, swarm idea where if it's just, like, four, like, 20-foot worms, once you can see them, they're not difficult to avoid. They're worms. But if your entire pool is full of, like, these tiny parasitic little worms... That then the pool as a whole is a threat rather than just four things in it. Yeah, and obviously the bigger the area that they're swarming over, the more of a threat it can be. Yeah. And then you've got to work out, well, what is it that's causing them to swarm or find another way to feed them to keep them away from the village? Or Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. So they, they could be quite an entertaining theme for a story as an environmental hazard oh yeah definitely now one thing about worms obviously we know from classic mythology the word worm is used for like snakes and dragons and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and the english word comes from the the norse slash anglo-saxon worm with a y which obviously means serpent or dragon Worms are often depicted as a devouring or corrupting force, whether you're talking like the Viking world serpent, Jormungandr, apologies if I've not pronounced that correctly, or the mythos worm that gnaws in the night. Now, possibly this is due to worms and maggots and stuff like that in nature Mm -hmm. crawling through rotten materials. And in fact, it was generally accepted from like the 17th to about the 19th century that maggots, worms and other such creatures were spontaneously generated. And they call it the spontaneous generation theory in rotting materials. And it was disproved in the 19th century by Louis Pasteur. But it could it could still exist in your campaign. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you say as the GM, like, oh, maggots and things like that are so spontaneously appear as a mark of corruption, that mm-hmm. could that could be a thing in your game now I'm going to put a quick plug in here for a film called The Lair of the White Worm which is a 1988 British horror film based on a Bram Stoker novel starring Amanda Donoghue and believe it or not Hugh Grant it's also got Peter Capaldi in it and it's based on the legend of the Lambton Worm which I'll go into in a minute and it's utter utter trash it it is trash but it's trash (laughs) that I love and the basically the very the sort of story of the Lambton Worm, which I'll put a Wikipedia link down in the description of this show. But basically, 
a guy goes fishing, finds this worm, chucks it in in the river, forgets about it, grows up. He joins the Crusades as penance for his early rebellious years. And while he's away doing his thing, this worm grows massive. And because of it being there, the well that he's sort of thrown it into becomes poisonous. Livestock starts going missing. And they basically discover that this fully grown worm has emerged from the well and it's now become like a monster and it's preying on things. So after seven years, John Lambton, from who it's named, returns from the Crusades, finds his father's estates have been absolutely wrecked because of this worm. He decides to fight it, consults a local wise woman slash witch. So the local wise woman hardens his resolve to kill the beast and she tells him to cover his armour in spearheads and fight the worm in the river Weir, where it now spends its days wrapped around a great rock. The witch also tells John that after killing the worm, he must then kill the first living thing he sees, or else his family will be cursed for nine generations and will nary perish peacefully in their beds. So he prepares the armour as the wise woman has advised him, and arranges with his father that when he's killed the worm, he's going to sound his hunting horn three times. On this signal, his father should release a hound, so it'll be the first thing he sees. He can kill the hound. Happy days, everybody disco dancing. So, he fights the worm by the river. The worm tries to wrap around him and crush him. It cuts itself to pieces on the spikes on his armour, and the bits of it flow away in the river before they can join up again. So he sounds his hunting horn three times and starts heading home. Unfortunately, his father's so excited that the beast is finally dead, he forgets to release a hound and he rushes out to congratulate his son. Now, John Lambton can't bear to kill his father, and so after they've met, the hound is released and he kills the hound. But unfortunately, it's too late, and nine generations of the Lamptons are cursed, so they shun. They will never die peacefully in their beds, and thus the story ends so in the the lair of the white worm film and also in that legend we've got this idea of you know like a small little worm it starts as small as a parasite and then it gets bigger it's fat and on it becomes like a major threat we've also got the idea in lair of the white worm of like a cult who first is sort of like feed it and placate it there's also mentions in some of the versions of the, the Lambton Worm story that John Lambton's father sort of sends the occasional sheep or cow to the worm to keep it placated until his son comes back. And there's various sort of mythos-style cults and stuff like that that have worshipped worms throughout fiction. I was just going to say that's not actually the way I heard the story. In the version I heard to get rid of the worm it wasn't putting spikes on his armor he went and buried himself in the road because he knew that the worm always took a particular route okay so he buried himself under the road and came up from under the road in much the way that these worms like come up from their little burrows and oh, right, nice. so it was like it was using its own tactics against it that's quite nice because obviously we're talking about like the worm being like the embodiment of his earlier sins and his rebellious youth that's quite nice that sort of he adopts the sort of mannerisms of the worm because they're very closely interconnected so that's quite a cool version of it and as we've said before with a lot of these old myths and stories that have been retold there's so many versions of them in different variations that you can look at any website any book and you'll probably find a slightly different version 
but I really like this idea of the sort of small worm growing bigger and it got me in the mind that like maybe like the sort of like the giant bloodworm as it's presented in the fiend folio what if it was like the larval form of like another creature and then because obviously the connections of blood and I like sticking to a theme it's called a bloodworm it's got to be to do with the blood and you could say but I think well why not take that connection a little bit further and that got me thinking what if in like a fantasy world like vampires are actually created when someone gets infected or infested with one of these creatures and that's what sort of does the change because it made me think of like um the film like blade 2 you know the reaper strain vampires where like their mouths come out and latch onto people and drain them and that was very much like the proboscis that we saw in the video talking about the bloodworm so i thought what if you get one of these um, parasites in you and it turns you into a vampire like a la brian lumley's necroscope series or 2014's the strain obviously it'd have no real game effect unless one of the players got like infected with them but i just thought it'd be quite a cool thing to like link these two monsters together and also and i know we did vampires sort of earlier on but it adds a nice extra wrinkle to vampires because we all know the sort of tried and tested sort of vampire but if you say to like if the players suddenly discover like maybe they're not even undead but the players suddenly discover oh yeah the people are vampires when they get infected with these worms mm-hmm. it, it suddenly throws open lots of new possibilities and it's like well right if someone gets infected can we like uninfect them in which case are they no longer a vampire so could we actually save people rather than just like ramming a bit of wood through their chest and setting them on fire and stuffing their heads full of garlic or whatever so i think one of the things i'd advise with sort of like creatures like this is have a look at the sort of theme of the creature and then don't be afraid to expand that in your game if you want to make it a bigger part of your game. The other thing that Bloodworms instantly made me think of when you said that we were going to be doing an episode about it is the uh, unmade episode of Star Trek The Next Generation which was supposed to be called Blood and Fire which was supposed to be about Regulan bloodworms. Oh, okay. So so what are Regulan bloodworms then? Well, the episode was never made. All right, okay. Because it featured a gay couple, and that was a terrible <gasps> thing in horror. the 90s. However, it was rewritten and made by Star Trek The New Voyages, and you can find it on YouTube, and I'd heartily recommend if anybody's interested in the regular bloodworms story oh, go nice. and have a look at it it's very much about a contagious disease okay so that ties in nicely with what <clears throat> we were just talking about it's uh yeah it, it's very much about a contagious disease and it's very much uh allegory for the things that were happening to gay people in the 1980s okay uh people being suspected of being infected with this hideous disease and people having to sacrifice themselves to save other people from it. And it, it's a dark story and I, I cannot do it justice, but go and have a look for Star Trek The New Voyages, Regulum Bloodworms. And yeah. It's another take on the sort of things that you can do when you start with just looking at, like, a... Uh, uh, gribbly wibbly creature and then where you can take that story i don't want to spoil the ending 
No, I think that's interesting. And to, to come back to a thing you said earlier, where you we were talking about how it's almost more threatening if they're like these tiny little parasites mm-hmm. that are everywhere. I think if you were if you were going to do that, and maybe that maybe they're just normal bloodworms rather than giant ones. I almost think you wouldn't need like creature stats for that. Because as we were saying just then when you were talking about it being like a metaphor for a disease, you could easily say, oh, this um, this pool that the player characters have perhaps got to go through, oh, it's infected with bloodworms. You go through it, you make your standard roll to see if you're infected with a disease. If you are, oh, you've been infested with bloodworms. And you could play it out using mm-hmm. the disease rolls for your like preferred edition of D&D or whatever game you're running. And then you wouldn't. You don't even realise until you get to the next village, and somebody there realises, and they want to lynch you for it. Yeah, like I say, you, you wouldn't even need monster stats for it, effectively. Mm-hmm. And again, I like say I love this idea of like bloodworms being like behind like vampires. We obviously already have like lycanthropy as a disease modelled in D and D, where you catch a disease, and over time it begins to change you and you begin to sort of lose control of yourself. You begin to become this other creature. I don't think it'd be too difficult to, like, file the serial numbers off lycanthropy and maybe say, oh, yeah, we're going to call this, like, bloodworm infection or blood fever or whatever. Mm -hmm. And perhaps that slowly turns you into this vampiric creature, whether it makes you undead or not, a decision for the GM of that particular campaign, but it slowly turns you into this undead creature. And perhaps, like, with lycanthropy, it sort of obviously your blood your brain has blood in it etc so perhaps it slowly works on your mind and changes your personality as time's going on and if i remember correctly lycanthropy originally shifted your alignment towards like what the weird creatures normal was and once you reach that you were sort of like an npc you were sort of given over to like being a a proper lycanthrope maybe it's the same with vampires once you hit that sort of alignment of a vampire Maybe you've sort of given yourself over to it. Your your brain chemistry and your personality have been so altered that you're no longer the person you once were. At which point, then you're looking at some serious magical mojo to try and heal you. And if they somehow do remove the infection, does your alignment change back? Or are the changes sort of like already been made and it's too late for you? Or do you have to try and find like a high-level priest or something to try and like restore you back to what you once were? All of those could like be fantastic opportunities for stories and games. Yeah, so not necessarily just a big phallic object. No, and and I think I think to be honest, just using it as a as just like a monster that's like and then it drains some blood out, it will be like a, a massive disservice to the giant bloodworm. I think at the very least, it's an interesting sort of trap creature, mm-hmm. and with a little bit of imagination, and maybe a few tweaks here and there in the stats, mm-hmm. looking at some disease rules and stuff like that, you could certainly make it a great deal more in your campaigns, if that's what you wanted to do. So, that's our episode on the giant bloodworm first seen in the AD&D first edition Fiend Folio. We hope you've enjoyed that. We'll be putting up a poll with some other monsters in it in a few days' time. So, get your votes in for that. It's normally on Twitter. If you've got any suggestions for monsters you'd like to see, future episodes, or maybe you want to chinwag about the giant bloodworm, then you can leave us a voicemail message using SpeakPipe. There's a link in the description or you can send us an email to rddrpgpodcast at gmail.com. Until we see you next time, take care, stay safe, and happy gaming. Bye.